0: This podcast is for adults 21 years of age and over. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, please come back when you are.
1: Spoke Media.
0: Hi, everybody. It's Bean. And Abdullah. And welcome to another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner, Abdullah, and I were both cannabis media makers and aficionados, and we explore a story from the long and fascinating history of the cannabis plant. Now, you should know, I don't know anything about what we're about to talk about on this episode. My partner, Abdullah, has done all the research. He's written it all out. He's got the story ready to go, and...
1: Yeah, and uh, hopefully uh, you've got a joint, uh, you know, getting rolled up for us, (laughs) that If you haven't already, please do, because we're going to get started soon. If you're at home, I suggest you uh, take a second to roll up a joint as well. Some of you might be wondering, uh, you know, does this feel a little weird, a little backwards this time around? Am I extra stone? What the hell is going on? Well... This is a special episode because we have reversed roles on this one. And I, in fact, have written the story, and I'm going to be reading it to you, Bean. This is like our
0: Freaky Friday episode, except I'm going to call it our Freaky High Day episode.
1: Freaky High Day, or vice versa, uh, if you remember the Fred Savage version of uh, (laughs) this movie. The movie's remade every six or seven years. But this time around, I'm going to be telling you the story. And we've got a really great one today. That's about a place that's very close to my heart and involves people that I really admire uh, and who have done really great things for cannabis where they are. And really, you know, I think when it comes down to it in the places where we can freely smoke cannabis in a post-prohibition world, there's always somebody who's fought for that right. So whenever you're on the street or in the patio of a bar or in your own living room and you're smoking weed freely... You should know that there was somebody that came before you that fought for you to be able to do that. And this episode is a tribute to people like that.
0: That is incredible. I'm thinking of episodes from season one, like Dennis Perrone and Brownie Mary. Um, And I'm just, I don't have a guess of what you're talking about, but I have a feeling that what we're heading towards is yet another GREAT MOMENT IN in WEED weed history. HISTORY
1: Spoke media <laughs> The funny thing about fighting to decriminalize something Is that you can quickly become a criminal in the process Every protest is as much an opportunity to move the needle As it is a way to get yourself arrested And the heroes of today's story put their own nuts in a vice Without knowing if their sacrifices would ever pay off All they knew was that the best way to express yourself Is to smoke weed in public for the world to see mm. I think we're talking about civil disobedience. Yep. And that
0: is a long tradition in the cannabis movement. Uh, And as you say, when when you're trying to make something legal that's illegal, you probably like it a lot, and you're probably the one breaking the law you're trying to change. That is
1: exactly what we're talking about. Our story is about a small band of so-called criminals who gathered at the birthplace of American democracy and held a simple protest— Peacefully smoking at 420. Their act brought on the wrath of authorities, federal and local, who turned a demonstrative sesh into brutal chaos. But from the ashes of this chaos rose a new opportunity, one that led to the first decriminalization of cannabis possession and public consumption in a major East Coast city. Do you know what we're talking about now?
0: Birthplace of American Democracy. That was a pretty big hint. Yeah, yeah. I think that both uh, the location and and your Philly normal T-shirt that you're wearing for the occasion indicate to me this is about a a group of, I'll say, in your face in the best sense, activists Mm -hmm. in Philly. Now, here's what I know— Kind of what went down a
1: little bit. But yeah, and the I think details, you know a couple of the guys as well. Yeah,
0: I know a couple of the guys. I grew up in New Jersey, but I've been in California a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm excited to hear, like, how they did all these things that they did. This story is inspirational, I think, in a big way. Sometimes it feels like, oh, well— if you want to make change, you have to be a part of a big group. And that big mm-hmm. group, everybody does a little. And at the end of the day, you mildly change something mm-hmm. incrementally. And that's true. And that's a big part of changing things. But every once in a while, just a couple of wild card, wildcat mm-hmm. people just take it to the street and and find that uh, point where authority is wobbly
1: and push on it.
0: And I, and I the, the one thing I do know about these cats is that's them.
1: Yeah. Are you ready? We'll get into it. All right. Play All right. It on me. Our story begins in 2011. In cities across America, bands of activists, idealists, and malcontents set up camp at landmarks of political and economic significance to protest capital inequity and promote a new participatory form of democracy. This was the Occupy Movement. It started small. Protesters call the movement Occupy Wall Street. Here in New York, thousands of demonstrators descended on the financial district. From auto workers to teachers, service workers to actors.
0: It it was this moment in modern American history, the the only one I can really remember, where you felt that politics was spilling over into the street Mm -hmm. and that some of these issues that are pushed aside and left to simmer were bubbling over And in a way that was constructive, in a way that was about discussing the underlying causes of problems instead of just marginalizing people who aren't making it in this capitalist system.
1: Yeah, exactly. Truly, the average person was revolting, you know, and and it's a thing when you see that throughout history, it means that market change is coming. While most of the cameras remained trained on Zuccotti Park in downtown New York City, at the loud and proud protesters of Occupy Wall Street and the much larger mob of onlookers, Philadelphia was home to the biggest permanent encampment of the movement, a lively village of tents on Dilworth Park and Thomas Paine Plaza in front of the city's historic city hall. People of all races and ages gathered and remained, chanting, banging drums, holding up signs, and calling for an end to the injustice of a broken system. So I think this is pretty much what you're talking about. All of the sort of, you know, anarchists and punks and all these wild and really interesting people came out of the woodwork and joined this movement. Uh, Philly is the home to, you know, pockets of socialist, liberal, kind of forward-thinking, differently-thinking people.
0: And and I think just living in a city where the symbolism of revolution is everywhere... Has to have a psychological effect and like, you know, just spending time in Philly. I grew up in Jersey So I've been to Philly a lot You are struck by like walking through this place that is full of monuments to people who overthrew the government And uh, yeah, I think that's remained a part of Philadelphia ever since
1: it's this sort of like Rocky mentality That is the through line to every Philadelphia story, you know, I mean in a way and this one is no different so one of the occupants of the Philly camp was an activist named Chris Goldstein. Now, I, I think you know Chris Goldstein. Is I, that right? I know Chris Goldstein going back like 15
0: plus years mm-hmm. when I was working at High Times, even when I was just first there. He was with Normal. He did a lot of cool radio stuff with that's them. Right, that's right. Uh, I have to say, I didn't hear a lot of the crazy shit we're about to hear coming, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, really cool dude.
1: Yeah, a very involved guy and a, a really... Uh, you know, determined activist, for sure. So, prior to joining Occupy, Goldstein had been a highly active member of Normal and had produced over 650 episodes of their news magazine podcast, Normal's Daily Audio Stash, interviewing activists from around the country who were on the front lines of reform. One fall day, when Occupy was in full swing, he decided to bring his core cause into the fold. And this is Goldstein. I was determined that if we were gonna create some sort of new culture and a new form of politics, that marijuana would be a part of it. So here's what he did Goldstein set up a blue tent and covered it in signs promoting cannabis policy reform. He dubbed it a marijuana safety zone right there in front of City Hall and welcomed any protesters who were so inclined to take a load off and blaze there with them. Amazing. <laughs> the best spot in all of Occupy Philly. <laughs> so, Naturally, the tent attracted a lot of like-minded people. It became a meeting place for the mellower end of the Occupy spectrum, and many a sesh was had over black market bowls. One of Goldstein's visitors was a local comedian and conspiracy theory podcaster named Nikki Allen Poe. Have you heard of Poe? I've I've seen I've seen some of the videos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this guy since this time has become a total Philadelphia character. He ran for city council at one point. Uh, and I mean, he, I voted for him then. And I mean, like, he's definitely one of those agitators that you just really love to watch, you know? Uh, at the time, he was doing a podcast called The Panic Hour, and it was a conspiracy theory podcast they did with a comedian named Steve Miller. Miller, and they made a whole bunch of videos together that are all on YouTube. He was a goofy agitator, a real Philly guy, okay. and a Philly native.
0: 24-hour shifts here throughout. Well, yeah. And what is the police expectancy of the time frame of something like this? Do exactly. you think we think it could go on for God knows how long? We have no expectation. And that's great for overtime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's Poe uh, with that's actually Police Chief Ramsey at Occupy Wall Street, and he's totally breaking their balls, and he's using his humor to reveal the truth, which is that the police. Loved Occupy Wall Street because it allowed them to clock lots of overtime. Literally, like, that's uh, the real uh, Scooby Snacks for the police is overtime. And it was an opportunity for them to do that and flex and all this shit. And he really, you know, got to the heart of that in just a couple of seconds. I think it really encapsulates what he does. Goldstein and Poe clicked right away, as you might expect. A couple of potheads, definitely similar views of the world, right? bonding over their love of cannabis and their frustration with its prohibition. And moreover, it's used by the police to harass and jail a massively disproportionate number of black and brown people in a city as historically black and brown as Philadelphia, right? I mean, Philly has had terribly disproportionate arrest numbers, definitely, uh, you know, searching someone for cannabis or the suspicion that they might have cannabis. The fact that a cop can say, oh, his eyes look red or he might smell like cannabis and that's probable cause to search him. Also fueled stop and frisk in Philly, which was a massive issue there. So, you know, this was definitely very pertinent stuff.
0: Yeah, this was this was about 2011, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right when this big ACLU uh, report came out. Everybody knew that the mm-hmm. arrests were disproportionate, but it quantified it and it quantified it in a way that the system could not deny it. Um, yep. These were facts. Here's the number of arrests. Here's how they break down mm-hmm. uh, by race. And here's, you know, what percentage of people in this city are this race. Very clear. I was going to say black and white. It is black and white, you know. Yeah. And five, six, depending on the city, up to eight times as likely to be arrested. Mm-hmm. That's all coming to light right at the same time that these events you're telling me
1: uh, mm-hmm. happened. So, so, so what what happens next? In late November of 2011, the Philly Police Department evicted the encampment at City Hall. The grandest manifestation of Occupy Philadelphia was over. The movement dwindled worldwide in the beginning of 2012. It was kind of a sad time because this thing that seemed like it was going to cause so much change just kind of dwindled. There was infighting, supposedly, and it was reported a certain way, and everyone was like, oh, it's just a bunch of crazy kids, and then it fucking fell apart. So Goldstein and Poe were not quite ready to give up the momentum. They spent 2012 engaging in activism for a number of causes, many of them cannabis-related, just as the national attitude towards cannabis appeared to be softening. So, you know, 2012 was when it really started to seem like cannabis could actually potentially be legalized in a couple places. There's medical cannabis bills across the board. So they were like, we love cannabis. We're activists. The cannabis thing seems to be happening here in Philadelphia. This place really needs to change its stance on cannabis. Why not join forces and really focus on cannabis activism in this way? By the way, I'm going to note right now that I always do this. I think his last name is pronounced Goldstein. I always Uh default to saying Goldstein, but I'm just going to call that out right here and disclaim it. It's Chris Goldstein, and Chris, I'm sorry, we're probably going to accidentally say Goldstein again (laughs) a whole bunch more times, but uh, we love you. I was led astray by my co-host. Yeah, yeah. Goldstein and Poe felt the time was right to do something big. They were discussing their plans at a normal meeting uh, in the basement of Underground Arts in Philadelphia, which is a place I've hung out at a lot when I used to live there, when they connected with a new guy named Mike Whiter, with whom they started brainstorming. Whiter is a military vet, a former Marine who was diagnosed with PTSD following combat and was medically discharged and sent home with his wounds. In a story that's all too familiar to veterans and their families, the VA put Whiter on a regimen of psychotropic drugs. And a lot of them. And this was just before he um, showed up at Normal and met up with Goldstein and Poe. I literally, when I say I sat on my couch and
0: drooled on myself, that's what I did. Sat on my couch, hated my life, drooled on myself and felt sorry for myself. Uh, I was watching the National Geographic channel. It was a, a special about um, veterans with PTSD using cannabis as an alternative. So that day I called up my friend, asked her to get me some weed, and we sat in my living room and smoked a joint. And, and I laughed and I smiled and I felt good. That, that was the turning point in my life. Two weeks went by and I became an, a weed activist and, and made cannabis my purpose in life. Wow, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, when combat veterans started to speak out about this, it was really powerful because it's a group that's hard for the establishment to keep down, to keep their voices out, to tell them that they're wrong um, because they have been through this experience. Um, And I think the other thing that I heard in there that was really heartening and made me feel good is the idea that responsible media about cannabis broke through to this person mm-hmm. and offered them, uh, offered Mike, uh, this person, I know this guy, mm-hmm. I didn't know this about him, mm-hmm. um, offered him the route to go from that person on the couch drooling to the person I know mm-hmm. who is full of ideas and energy yeah. and, um, vibrancy of life. And we put a lot of time and, and energy and a lot, had a lot of fun into trying to tell good stories about weed. And I always do feel great, you know, that neither of us had anything to do with that National Geographic story, but Mm -hmm. that idea that people hear
1: the truth about this plant and it changes their lives. National Geographic, shout out you guys for being responsible and documenting veterans using cannabis and working. I mean, I haven't seen this film, but clearly it got through to somebody who really needed it, so. You know, clearly there wasn't that much cannabis media out there, but this little bit of it on a major platform mm. got through to them. Uh, so I think that's pretty great. So, okay, so now I feel like we've got our core team yep. assembled. Yep, the suit, the jester, and the warrior. The stage is set. Goldstein, Poe, and Whiter commit to staging one protest a month at Independence Hall for the next year, starting in December of 2012. Here's Goldstein. It's a free speech zone. It's the original National Park free speech zone. When you enter the area, you're actually in Independence Hall National Historic Park. So you're on federal land. You're not on city property anymore. And at the time in 2012, it was actually less serious to get caught by the park rangers than it was to get caught by Philly cops because the cops were going to stick you in handcuffs and take you to jail. Whereas the park rangers were going to write you a ticket. That was the whole reason we thought we could have a little more fun there. We didn't want to invite people out to a big pot-smoking protest where everybody ended up in city jail. The idea that they chose
0: this ground not just symbolically, because, as you say, this is where the Constitution was written on on hemp paper. I'm Mm -hmm. required to say that.
1: (laughs) It is actually written on hemp paper. Uh, Historically accurate.
0: But they also understand that this isn't just symbolic ground. It's a ground where they can have their say with less consequences. And, like, we've talked about these guys as kind of, like, pranksters and wild and crazy, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you need to put a lot of thought into civil disobedience as well, Mm -hmm. particularly if you want it to be effective and particularly if you don't want to suffer terrible consequences for it. And so, you know, I think that's an important lesson here. They know their city. They're fighting on their own terrain. They've studied it and looked for those wobbly points. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to be taking action right at the heart of what, you know, this link between the American Revolution, Occupy, and the mm-hmm. cannabis movement, all coming from the same place, trying to yeah. address
1: wrongs. And they're really trying to take measures to do this in the most sanctioned and correct way, right? So on Independence Mall, uh, right by the Liberty Bell, there is a granite plaque with the First Amendment inscribed <laughs> into it, okay? Okay. <laughs> Literally, it's sitting out there, and, and this is this is that free speech zone that Goldstein's mm-hmm. talking about. So, on October 2nd, 2012, Goldstein and activist Colleen Begley smoked a joint uh, at Independence Hall to signify the 75th anniversary of the first federal marijuana arrest. Uh, that was Samuel R. Caldwell, the student was arrested under the Marijuana Tax Act. First guy. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. and memoriam. So... This inspired Poe, who was like, okay, shit, let's do that, like, you know, but in a bigger way. So he jumped on it to plan and promote the next one, right? And on December 15th, 100 people showed up at Independence Mall for a protest dubbed Smoke Down Prohibition. Yeah, so
0: this gets into a really interesting area of legal theory, kind of still contested in the courts, but... Uh, a lot of legal scholars believe that if you're within 100 feet of a plaque with the First Amendment on it and it's 420, <laughs> weeds legal for the next 15 minutes or what's known as a sesh.
1: Yeah, it, that sounds so reasonable. You know what I mean? <laughs> like as much as I know you're joking and it's like, oh, yeah. But it's like it sounds so reasonable, right? It, it seems like that really should be an actual rule. So, yeah, they, they went over there. They gathered up. A hundred people, a poet promoted the event, so people had like RSVP'd to the event, and you know, it was like college kids, and like people of all ages, people of all different races, right? Uh, It's also worth crediting Ed Forcheon, N.J. Weedman, who had performed this protest previously on the same spot. Uh, N.J. Weedman, of course, is a well-known cannabis activist who's based in New Jersey, who is known for agitating by smoking cannabis in public, uh, blowing weed smoke in the face of cops. There's videos of that online that you can check out. You must be Ed, New Jersey weed man. Well,
0: obviously, it's still against the law to possess marijuana in New Jersey, so I will be openly possessing marijuana. I'll be openly selling marijuana.
1: I'm selling weed here at the state house. Up oh, here comes state troopers. He definitely was part of the inspiration of the Smokedown Prohibition. So they have this little party. It goes off it's fine. They count down to 420. They blaze. They have a good time. And in 15 minutes, they're gone. Right. They did it again in February of 2013 and 200 people showed up. Right. Here's Poe speaking to a libertarian group about the progress after those first two smoke downs. So we decided to get as many people as we could to smoke at the Liberty Bell. The first one, 700 people RSVP'd and then 100 people came out. And the second one, 500 RSVP'd and about 200 came out. People are starting to see that if you want to go out and you want to break unjust laws, that you can. And there will be no repercussions. And that's how you gain your freedom back. And I'm starting to laugh as I'm reading it because clearly that's not where this is going to go. But okay, so uh, yeah. So what do you think of that? I think there's going to be repercussions. (laughs) And I think
0: that, you know, Civil disobedience and, and all this, you you know, you should be aware of what you might be getting yourself into. You know, if you're taking a risk and you know it, so be it. That's your decision. You're yeah. a free, autonomous human. Yeah. If you're taking a big risk and you don't realize you're taking a big risk, then you're fucking up.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. So for a little bit, Poe was right. I attended Smokedown Prohibition number three, which happened uh, March 17th, twenty thirteen. Uh, I wrote an article about that. So I actually asked one of the park rangers at the time. I was like, uh, is this cool? And he was like, yeah, it's it's a d- protest, you know? So like they'll do, they'll protest and then they'll leave. It's it's fine. You know, I'm just here to watch and make sure it's cool. Everything seemed all right, right? So after that, right, the next smoke down was going to be really big. That year, 420 landed on a Saturday. Ooh. And it was to be a crisp and beautiful one, according to the weather forecast. Goldstein, Poe, and Whiter gathered with their biggest crowd yet and smoked the fuck out right in front of the Liberty Bell, eliciting no guff from the park rangers. That party went off without a hitch, right? Uh, wow, every- still? Yeah, so here's, here's Goldstein. On 420, everything was as good as it could possibly get. Six to 700 people show up in front of Independence Hall, light joints at 420, on 420. No one was arrested. No one was cited. But there's this one video from this jerk of a Christian activist who's always out there with anti-abortion pictures and shit in front of the Liberty Bell. And he was chiding the park rangers saying, why aren't you arresting these guys? What the hell is wrong with you? So this is... Michael Markovich, he's from an organization called Repent America, and he was a harbinger of doom for smoke down prohibition.
0: Here's this guy who's out there. Okay, I don't agree with his cause, but I do completely believe in his right to have his say in a free speech society. Yeah. Um, but as soon as he sees what he doesn't like, and also it's like, I doubt there oh, yeah. were hundreds of people having the greatest day of their life hanging out with his bitter old, you know, yeah, screaming asshole vibe. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine, you're out there, all, you're like, this is my place to rant and rave. And now all these people are oh, out yeah. here smoking weed and having a great time. I'm uh, going to be a dick about it.
1: Yeah. Six or 700 people is a lot. But, I mean, that should, you know, they were peaceful. That's the thing. They showed up. They did their thing. They left. They cleaned up after themselves. What more do you want? And uh, after the break, uh, I'm going to tell you what happened. it will be 20, and 10. 10. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Smoke weedia. <sighs> All right, we're back uh, and we're ever closer to our great moment in weed history. So, the fifth edition of the protest, Smokedown Prohibition, landed on May 18th, 2013, uh, which is incidentally my 29th birthday. This was the rainy Saturday in Philadelphia. Goldstein was away seeing family for that one. And he got a call from a very concerned Mike Whiter just a couple hours before the event. So, okay, this is Whiter. Poe and I went down there first a couple hours early to check things out. And there were bike racks that made kind of a cage around the free speech zone. And this is a combat veteran
0: looking at this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And seeing my own country is going to barricade me in at the site of free speech. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want me to smoke a joint. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. After this fifth one, it was where free speech went to die. So we started calling it the First Amendment Tombstone. There were bike racks all around us. They had us caged into this thing. They put us into a pen, and they were ready for us. But we did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. About 300 heavily armed and armored Philly cops, national park rangers, DHS officers, and federal protective services officers lined up along the outside of the barricade in a massive show of intimidation to a ragtag band of stoners and medical patients. They had tied signs to the barricade saying, marijuana is prohibited. This gold sign. I never knew that park rangers had riot gear until smoke-down prohibition.
0: Damn. And then just that idea, like you said, they did it anyway. I mean, that's part of civil disobedience, too. You don't always have to make that decision. But, you know, I think of the original essay by uh, Thoreau, Civil Disobedience. He refused to pay his taxes because the money was going to support a war that he didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. And he went to prison for that. And he set that example. And you look at people like Rosa Parks, who— you know, refused to give up her seat on the bus, and so many people at street protests who say, I'll be willing to be arrested. Um, And that is an effective means of protest.
1: It is not one to be taken lightly. So shit's about to get a little bit crazy. Poe and libertarian activist Adam Kokesh. Have you heard of Adam Kokesh? It sounds familiar, but... Yeah, he's one of these guys. Poe and libertarian activist Adam Kokesh led the protest in the face of all those cops, and predictably, the cops descended upon them with great vengeance. In the melee that ensued, Poe was pinned to the ground by multiple officers with their knees in his back and then dragged away in handcuffs while fellow protesters filmed and chanted, no victim, no crime.
0: Yeah, that makes my skin crawl, to be honest with you. Doesn't it? I've been at some protests, uh, you know, not, not about weed, where the force comes in and, and that feeling is eerie. It's, it's frightening and it's intimidating and it's enraging. And I think you see all of that in the crowd. I got to say big up to Poe for, uh, you won't be able to see this in the podcast, but he's got a lit joint in his mouth. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's at least three cops tackling him and yeah. you could see a little puff of smoke come
1: up, so that's... Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> he, he didn't He didn't let go of that thing. His mouth was still <laughs> clasped around the joint. And uh, they were hog-tying him. I mean, they, they really, really roughed him up. Like, they were bending his legs back and, like, you know, tying his feet up. I mean, really, that's extremely invasive to be manhandled by professionally mm-hmm. trained thugs. His act of disobedience and, in fact, the reaction... That it elicited from the authorities is really what propels the rest of this story forward.
0: Yeah. And uh, interestingly, you know, there's all of these people smoking weed, but they only go after one person, Mm -hmm. which shows a few things. They've been watching carefully enough to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But also, it's not about smoking weed. Yeah. Because all the people were smoking weed. Yeah. It's about leading people to disobey.
1: Yeah, exactly. And clearly, they were trying to make an example out of Poe and Adam Kokesh, who was also arrested that day. They were trying to cut the head off the snake. Okay, so Poe gets arrested, right? And he gets locked up in federal jail. Poe was charged with a federal crime of marijuana possession and with assaulting a federal officer. So if you see that video... Uh, The assaulting's really going from one end of the table to the other. There's really no back assaulting happening at all. He's pinned down by three guys. So Poe was charged with a federal crime of marijuana possession, and assaulting a federal officer, and was held in federal jail for eight days before being released on bail. He was fined $800 and placed on a year's federal probation, and he was barred from the Independence Mall area, Whiter managed to walk away from the incident. And this is Whiter. I actually ate an edible that day. (laughs) (laughs) That's a rough pairing. (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I didn't end up in jail. At 420... I shoved an edible in my mouth and chewed it with my mouth open like a cow just to make the point that I was eating an edible. This, <laughs> this was his protest. Other people smoked the joint, some people smoked the bowl. He put an edible in his mouth, but to the cops, it was just a man eating a brownie uh, at a US historic site, not a crime. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. No one is quite sure why the cops and the feds decided to crack down on that protest when the previous ones had proceeded without incident. Maybe they were freaked out by the size of the 421 and wanted to put a stop to it. Maybe that lunatic preacher complained just enough to make them act. Maybe Goldstein had pissed off one too many powerful people with his savage political tweets. Or maybe sometimes in America, free speech is suspended for no good reason. No one was sure what would happen if they went back to the Liberty Bell to protest again the following month. Clearly, the authorities wanted to send a message. Despite the threat of bodily harm and likely federal charges, Goldstein and Weider decided to press on. They had committed to 12 protests, and they were going to demonstrate. Barricades be damned. That's incredible. They gathered in June for Smokedown Six. The cops, federal and local, were out in full force again. Poe was now banned from the site, so he could only protest from 100 feet away. The crowd of stoners and patients gathered, with Goldstein at the center yelling into a megaphone as the clock ticked down to 420. This
0: week it's fucking good. All right. <laughs> hey guys, this fucking You want some? Well, I think, yeah, you got to break out the good weed for a moment
1: like this. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I think he did. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah, he was like, oh, this shit is good. And I like to think that at least one of those cops or park rangers or officers, like, throwing these guys to the ground was like, you know what? I do want (laughs) some, But I have to do this. You know what I mean? But who who knows? I don't know how cops think. (laughs) I never claimed to know. (laughs) All right, so just before they come over and walk Goldstein and Whiter away from the protests, the crowd chants Nazis, Nazis behind them. Right? Nazis, 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 Nazis. Nazi, Nazi. The cops walked them over to a processing tent that had been set up on site, where the local U.S. attorney was present, and they were issued $175 federal tickets. So that's all that they got that day.
0: So that's like the worst they could throw at them.
1: Yeah, that's the worst they could throw at them. On this one, they didn't brutalize them or arrest them uh, the way that they had done to Poe, but you know they were still very present there. So it was clear that they did not want these things to go on. Despite that, they continued doing the smoke downs. They had committed <laughs> to twelve of them, and they were like, "We're gonna fucking do 12. In August of 2013, Goldstein was cited once more, and this one would fuck his shit up. And this is him. They remanded me to the New Jersey office. I couldn't leave the state of New Jersey without permission. I literally had the borders of the state of New Jersey as my prison for two years, which is a sentence almost worse than hell, I assure you. I had a federal probation officer assigned to me who would come to my house once a month and drug test me. 26 drug tests. No joke. But uh, Goldstein did say, that he was able to request permission for media appearances and things like that in outside the state. As if a year or two of abstinence from weed wasn't bad enough, they both also have federal criminal records and will have to deal with all the pains in the ass that that comes with for the rest of their lives. Only a presidential pardon can clear them. And this is true. The only way that they can clear their records is with a presidential pardon. But after all of this bullshit, an opportunity was finally about to knock. This is Goldstein. Our whole point was to reform marijuana laws, and we had certainly gotten the attention of city government. At Occupy Philadelphia, we had made super friends with a woman named Ann Gemmel, and she was friends with everybody at City Hall. We were really lucky to know her, and at the time, there was a city councilman named Jim Kenney. He was an at-large city councilman sitting in his seat for over a decade, a very, very good guy and a progressive city councilman. Anne brought me and Poe into a meeting just as we were both in the midst of our federal trials, November of 2013. And Anne got us an official City Hall meeting. Kenny and Poe, both Philly natives, connected in that way that you often can with someone from your hometown. Like the way Poe described him Was like a real straight shooter. He goes, he's a straight shooter and I'm a straight shooter. So we got along just fine, right? At this meeting, Goldstein and Poe laid it down for Kenny. Those arrested for small amounts of weed are usually people of color the police burn roughly 17,000 work hours a year on marijuana crimes, and the local court system wastes $7 million annually on processing these arrests. Moreover, decriminalization could be the first step to mending the frayed relationship between the black community and city police. Kenny found the arguments compelling enough to pursue a change in the law. With Poe and Goldstein's collaboration, he and his staff drafted a bill that would sufficiently alleviate the arrest rate reducing penalties to a $25 ticket for possession of up to 30 grams of pot and also a $100 ticket for consuming cannabis in public. Kenny fought like a bulldog, according to Goldstein, and gained strong backing in the city council. He won over the very resistant mayor, Michael Nutter, and the police chief, Charles Ramsey. Neither of these guys were down with this at all. Nutter, a black mayor of Philadelphia, was still like, no, I don't want to decriminalize cannabis. And Kenny managed to finesse him as well. Even though we were now federal criminals on probation, we were testifying before Philadelphia City Council trying to get decriminalization done and also holding protests and rallies and drumming up public support for this issue. So they were still hitting the streets, but now they also had this sort of inside track to be able to directly feed ideas to somebody with some power. Against all odds, they managed to find a like-minded person in city government, and then that person was tenacious enough to not only get support throughout the city government, but to change the mind of a really stubborn mayor who was really not inclined to decriminalize cannabis at all, and just a couple weeks before he actually agreed to sign the bill, had said that it's not a priority. And he made a couple of baffling statements that are out there on the internet that I, I chose not to uh, put right You know, in this podcast. So on October 2nd, 2014, exactly two years after Goldstein and Colleen Begley smoked on Independence Mall, and so exactly 77 years since the <laughs> Caldwell arrest, right, at City Hall in Philadelphia with Poe and Goldstein and Whiter, Uh, rejoicing in the crowd, and I myself was there as well in City Hall for this. Michael Nutter signed the decriminalization ordinance. It would go into effect October 20th of the same year, just a couple of weeks later. Maybe the greatest moment in Philadelphia's weed history, but here it is. Mike Whiter had an idea. Inspired by America's first recreational cannabis customer, Sean Azaridi, who was also a combat veteran, Mike sought to be the first person in Philadelphia to receive a mere $100 ticket for smoking cannabis in public. He made a request to the Philadelphia Police Department's chief inspector, Joe Sullivan, who agreed. <laughs> Wait a minute. And they planned well, hold for on. It, Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> he, he said he wasted about three quarters of a gram in a joint. He yeah. lit it. He took a couple puffs and Sullivan made him put it out, wrote him a ticket. There was some news cameras there. It was on the news that day. Sully? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sully
0: gave him a ticket. But I think what this shows, too, is like those guys, not that this was part of what's important, but those guys won the respect of the fucking cops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can't think of the police as like a monolithic thing. They're comprised of human beings. And these human beings looked out on the mall and saw people fighting for what they believed in, despite the consequences. Mm-hmm. Cops still not friends of the podcast. Oh. Cops still not friends of the podcast. <laughs> Cops still not friends of the podcast. <laughs> but, you know, kudos to these guys for changing hearts and minds on the other side, at least a little bit. And I and I know that Philly now has a very progressive district attorney.
1: Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, Larry Krasner... Friend of the podcast. Yeah, and friend of the podcast. Chill guy. I remember I used to see his ads in the subway. He was from a law firm called Krasner Krasner and Unwedinjo. Unforgettable fucking name for a law firm, for sure. <laughs> and it turns out the guy's pretty cool. Uh, and he is, uh decided not to prosecute marijuana arrests in the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. Along with a lot of
0: progressive changes in policing and criminal justice. And, you know, I think it's easy to draw a line. From that first joint that they smoked, you know, pretty innocently and freely and without a big plan to this commitment to do it 12 times and see what happens and Mm -hmm. following through on that to real change in the city government. And now, you know, somebody who is really in charge of law enforcement, uh, all the way up that chain from Mm -hmm. the streets and definitely not the other way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I have a little epilogue here, and I I think you're going to like uh, what happens. All right, so things got better in Philadelphia. It was always a city where people were certainly smoking weed in the street. You know, you saw that all the time. You smell weed all the time in Philly. But you never knew when a cop was going to come and use that as an excuse to fuck your shit up, right? So Philly has become a weedy town. People don't have fear anymore about, like, you know... Uh, smoking in a park or smoking in public. It has really changed. These guys enhanced this thing that I love in this incredible way. They made it so that I can smoke weed freely, more freely as a person in Philadelphia. And I think that is so priceless, right? So Goldstein continues his activism, teaches the next generation of agitators at Temple University, uh, you should definitely check him out on Twitter. It's at Freedom Is Green. He says all kinds of amazing shit on there. He's hilarious and uh, he's really awesome. Mike Whiter, as we were saying before, works at Now This Weed and has continued his fight to normalize cannabis and to you know uh, educate people about cannabis. So shout out him. So this decriminalization issue made Jim Kenny, the city councilman in our story, a household name in Philadelphia. Especially in households with a bong. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he was always a progressive guy, and Philadelphians were apparently into that because he ran for mayor of Philadelphia in 2015, and he won. He is currently the mayor of Philadelphia. And currently a friend of the fucking podcast. Friend of the fucking podcast. And, in fact, I mean, I would love to do a story about Jim Kenny that involves cannabis on this show. Jim Kenny, if you ever want to come on our podcast, we'd love to have you and talk about your weed history. All right. Poe had a few more shenanigans. Like I was telling you, he ran for city council uh, in Philadelphia on a platform of decriminalization of cannabis, abolishing the Philadelphia Parking Authority, uh, who are notorious in the city of Philadelphia, and renaming Broad Street Allen Iverson Boulevard. (laughs) Uh, which I can definitely get behind. And I voted for him then, and I would do it again, as I suggest everyone else do as well, <laughs> if you ever have the opportunity. And it has improved the culture of that city, I think. You know, it's it's a better vibe in that town walking around. It was always a good vibe, and now it's a better vibe. And he says, like, you know... Every time I walk out my front door, even when I'm pushing my baby in a stroller and I see four people smoking a blunt or I smell it, mm-hmm. I know that you know, all the
0: fucking articles and all the accolades and all that bullshit. The real gift is the fact that people can smoke marijuana openly in the city that I love. And I think that like that, you know, till the end of time will be the crowning achievement of my pot career. You know, I think that's what it all comes down to in the end is if you can make your world a little freer, you make the world a little freer. And sometimes you can get, hesitant to act because the problem seems so big and the problem seems so global. But, you know, what he's saying is I focused in on something that was really important to me that was local and was able to change it. And that alone feels really good. And and I haven't been to Philly in a while, but I do not doubt that it's a better vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that like I feel better anywhere I can smoke weed and, and know that I'm not going to get in any trouble beyond maybe a small fine.
1: I really am truly so deeply thankful to these guys uh, and to their entire cohort in Philadelphia for fighting to make this happen because they could have just sat there and not done anything. Even when it seemed like they were going to get totally fucked for it, they continued to try and I mean, what are the odds? What are the mm-hmm. odds that this would pay off? There's so many stories like this where there's no happy ending, but I'm really glad that in the city I love, there was a very happy ending for the cannabis decriminalization fight. All right, well, that's it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Being mean, this was really fun. I have a new appreciation for what you do on this show. <laughs> it's not easy. It takes a lot of work, and you do it really well, man. I hope... Uh, that I can live up to your standard. No,
0: this was a ride, man. This is yeah. <laughs> an incredible story. And, uh, you know, you told me a story about people that I I know, but I didn't know their story.
1: I'm so glad you liked it. Special, special shout out to Chris Goldstein. Sorry I butchered your name on and off throughout the podcast. N.A. Poe and Mike Whiter. You guys are the best. And a lot of love to everybody in Philadelphia listening to this podcast. Thanks for hanging with us. And to play us out, Poe and uh, his co-host on the Panic Hour, Steve, they made a few songs that are kind of like funny covers to promote smoke down prohibition. So this one's called "Staying Real High.
0: Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're
1: produced by Brigham Mosley and Cody Hoffmachel with help from Lee George. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Special thanks to Gold Digger Studio. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Check out our show notes, where you'll find more information about things we discussed today and links to our sponsors. And very special thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon. And if you're enjoying our show, please Tell your friends about it the next time you're smoking weed with them.
0: Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at great moments in weed history. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, aka Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, Pax. Go to pax.com and use promo code greatmoments, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.